Act Two, Part Two of The Show Off by George Kelly. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Act Two, Part Two. Amy turns from the hall door where she has been standing, seeing them out, and comes forward to the back of the chair at the left of the center table where Aubrey is sitting. Where is your toupee, Aubrey? Touching the sticking plasters on his forehead. In my pocket here. Amy stroking his hair. Is your head hurting you? Aubrey reaching for her hand and drawing it down over his left shoulder. Not a bit, honey. Just a couple of little scratches. He kisses her hand. She raises her eyes and looks straight ahead with a troubled expression. Aubrey, what do you think they'll do to you down there Monday? Now don't you worry about that, sweetheart. I'll be right there if they try to pull anything. She moves over thoughtfully towards the upper right-hand corner of the center table. Then a new thought occurs to her, and she turns her head and looks at him narrowly. You hadn't had anything to drink, had you, Aubrey? Aubrey, looking at her quickly. Who, me? I mean, I thought somebody might have treated you or something. Aubrey making a statement. I had a glass of champagne six months ago with a friend of mine in his suite of the Ritz-Carlton Hotel, and I haven't had a drink of anything since. You better take off your overcoat, Aubrey. We'll have to stay here till they get back. He gets up and commences to remove the overcoat. Well, I guess we will. I wonder how your father is. Amy taking the overcoat from him. Pretty bad, I guess, or they wouldn't have sent for Joe. She takes the coat up to the sofa at the right of the mantelpiece, and Aubrey takes a huge cigar from his vest pocket and feels for a match. I'll get you a match, Aubrey. She goes out into the kitchen, and Aubrey moves to a point above the center table, biting the tip of his cigar. I thought I had some here, but I guess I haven't. Did they send for Joe? Yes, they telephoned for him, to the place where he works. Your mother said it was a stroke. Amy entering with some matches. I guess that's what it is, too. His two brothers died that way. Aubrey taking the matches from her. I'm sorry to hear that, Amy. But you mustn't worry now, kid. It isn't only that I'm worried about, Aubrey. I'm thinking about you. Monday. She takes hold of the lapels of his coat and almost cries. Aubrey putting his arm around her. Now, listen to me, baby. You know I'd tell you, don't you, if there was anything to worry about? But they're getting awfully strict in this city. There's been so many automobile accidents lately. They're only strict, honey, when a man's driving under the influence of liquor. There's a slight pause, and Amy thinks hard. What if that traffic cop is hurt bad, Aubrey? It'd only be a fine for reckless driving, even if they could prove it was reckless driving. And I can prove it was the copper's fault detaching himself from her. So they'll very likely be apologizing to me round there Monday morning, instead of finding me. He moves across and down to the window at the left, with ever so slight a touch of swagger. Oh, I wouldn't care if they only find you, Aubrey, because I could go back to work until it was paid. Aubrey looking out the window. You'll never go back to work, kid, while I'm on the boat. I wouldn't mind it, Aubrey. Not while you're my wife, Amy. He half turns to her, with considerable consequence. 
I'd rather leave the Pennsylvania Railroad flat and go out and take one of the jobs that have been offered me where they pay a man what he's worth. You don't think they might do something else to you, do you, Aubrey? Aubrey turning to her. Oh, they might try to take away my license. You haven't got a license, have you? Aubrey turning back to the window. No, I neglected to attend to it this year. They can fine you for that, can't they? Driving an automobile without a license, you mean? Yes. Sure. They can fine you for anything unless you know how to beat them to it. He strikes the match on the arm of the Moorish chair at his right. Amy rests her hands on the center table and looks straight out wretchedly. Amy, tonelessly. What is it they send them to prison for, Aubrey? He is just holding the lighted match to the cigar and consequently is unable to answer her immediately. The front doorbell rings. She glances apprehensively in the direction of the hall door, then meets his eyes. I wonder who that is. Aubrey tossing the burnt match into the window at his left. Do you want me to answer it? I wish you would, Aubrey. It might be something about Pop. He crosses in front of the Morris chair and up at the left of the center table to the mirror over the mantelpiece, where he stands settling his tie and vest. Amy turns to the couch and gathers up his coat, then steps forward to the center table and picks up his hat and the bandage that he took off his head. Aubrey touching the plasters on his forehead. Does my head look all right? Amy glancing at him as she goes towards the hooks at the head of the cellar stairs. Yes, it's all right, Aubrey. Wait a minute. He steps to her side and takes the carnation from the button hook of his overcoat then steps back to the mirror and fixes it in his sack coat. Hurry up, Aubrey. The doorbell rings again. Aubrey going out into the hallway. All right, all right. Amy hangs the overcoat and hat up, then turns, opens the cellar door, and tosses the bandage down the cellar stairs. Then she crosses quickly to a point in front of the mantelpiece and listens intently. Gil, at the front door, Good evening. Good evening, sir. Is this where Mr. Fisher lives? This is Mr. Fisher's residence, yes, sir. What can I do for you? Why, well, I got some things of his here that the boss asked me to leave. Ah, just step inside for a minute. Getting a little colder, I think. The front door closes. Well, we can look for it any time now. Will you just step this way, please? Aubrey enters from the hallway. There's a gentleman here, Amy, with some things belonging to your father. Just come right in. Aubrey comes forward a few steps at the left, and Gil enters. Good evening. Good evening. This is my wife, Mrs. Piper. Gil nodding. How do you do? Amy nods. Mrs. Piper is Mr. Fisher's daughter. The rest of the folks have gone down to the hospital. Oh, I see. Turning to Amy. Have you heard anything from the hospital yet? Not yet, no. We didn't know anything about it at all till 15 minutes ago. It's too bad. Those hospitals won't tell you anything. Do you work with my father? No, ma'am. I'm a twister on the second floor, but... One of the machinist helpers that works with your father knows I live out this way, so he asked me to stop by with these things on me way home. 
He crosses towards Amy with a hat and overcoat and a more or less discolored lunchbox. Amy taking the things. Thanks ever so much. There's just the overcoat and hat and his lunchbox. Thanks. McMahon says if he comes across anything else, he'll let me know. Amy crossing to the sofa with the things. No, I don't imagine there's anything else. If there is, I'll bring it up. Well, that's very nice of you. I'm ever so much obliged to you. She comes back towards Gil. Who is this McMahon? He's one of the machinist helpers down there. Ma, well, I see. Were you there when my father was taken sick? No, ma'am, I wasn't. I don't think there was anybody there to tell you the truth. McMahon says he was talking to him at a quarter to three, and he says when he came back from the annex at three o'clock, he found Mr. Fisher lying in front of number five. Aubrey with a suggestion of professionalism. Very likely a little touch of agina pectoria. Gil looks at him. The doctor down there says he thought it was a stroke. Same thing. Won't you sit down, Mr. Uh... No, thank you, ma'am. I, I can't stay. I've got to get along out home. There's a rapping out at the right. They all look in the direction of the kitchen. Oh, I guess it's Mrs. Harbison. I'll go. She goes out at the right. Aubrey crossing above Gill towards the right. Don't stand out there talking now, Amy, with nothing round you. Surveying himself in the buffet mirror at the right. Do you live up this way, Governor? Uh, no, sir. I live out Richmond way. Ah, I see. I take number 32 over to Allegheny Avenue. Aubrey turning and moving over towards the center table. Too bad my car's laid up. I could run you out there. Oh, that's all right. The trolley takes me right to the door. I had to turn it in Thursday to have the valves ground. Amy appearing in the kitchen door. I'm wanted on the telephone, Aubrey. I'll be right in. Will you excuse me for a minute? Oh, that's all right, ma'am. I'm going right along myself. Very likely some word from the hospital. I hope it ain't any bad news. Well, you got to be prepared for most anything, Governor, when a man gets up around the old three-score mark. That's true. A lot of them push off about that age. Especially when a man's worked hard all his life. Yes, I guess Mr. Fisher worked pretty hard. Not an excuse in the world for it, either. I've said to him a thousand times if I've said to him once, Well, Pop, when are you going to take the big rest? Oh, he'd say, I'll have lots of time to rest when I'm through. All right, I'd say, go ahead. Only let me tell you, Pop, you're going to be through ahead of schedule if you don't take it soon. Well, I guess it comes pretty hard on a man that's been active all his life to quit all of a sudden. Well, he wouldn't have to quit exactly. I mean, he's a handy man. He could putter around the house. There are lots of little things here and there that I'm not any too well satisfied with. He glances around the room. Is Mr. Fisher's wife living? Yes, she's here with us, too. Well, that makes it nice. Well, it's a pretty big house here. So when I married last June, I said, 
Come ahead. The more the merrier. <laughs> he laughs a little. Tis a pretty big house, this. Yes, they don't make them like this anymore, Governor. Put up by the McNeil people out here in Jenkintown. Oh, yes. They just put up the twenty of them. Kind of sample houses. Ten on that side and ten on this. Of course, these on this side have the southern exposure. So a man's got to do quite a bit of wire pulling to get hold of one of these. You got to do some wire pulling to get hold of any kind of house these days. Well, I have a friend here in town that's very close to the city architect, and he was able to fix it for me. Gil, glancing toward the window at the left. It's a nice street. Nice in summer. I was surprised when I saw it, because when I asked a taxi cab driver down here where it was, he said he never heard of it. Aubrey, looking at him keenly. Never heard of Crescent Street? He said not. Aubrey, with pitying amusement. He must be an awful straw ride. I had to ask a police officer. Well, I'll tell you, Governor. I don't suppose they have many calls for taxicabs out this way. You see, most everybody in through here has his own car. I see. Some of them have a half dozen, for that matter. <laughs> Gil, starting for the parlor doors. There certainly is plenty of them knocking round. All over the ice. Aubrey indicates the hall door. This way, Governor. Gil, turning towards the hall door. Oh, excuse me. Aubrey moving towards the hall door. Those doors go into the parlor. I see. He turns at the hall door. A fellow was telling me over here in the cigar store that there was quite a smash-up about half an hour ago down here at Broad and Erie Avenue. That's so. He says there was some nut down there running into everything in sight. He says he even ran into the traffic cop and broke his arm. Can you imagine what they'll do to that guy knocking the traffic cop down? What was the matter with him? Was he stewed? No. The feller in the cigar store says he was just a nut. He says they didn't know where he got hold of this car. He says it didn't belong to him. I guess he picked it up somewhere. They took it away from him and pinched him. Starting to go out. So, I guess he won't be running into anything else for a while. Aubrey following him out. Traffic's in pretty bad shape in this town right now. Certainly is. Why, a man's not safe walking along the sidewalk these days. I hope your wife will hear some good news. Well, while there's life, there's hope, you know. That's right. No use looking on the dark side of things. Amy enters from the right with a wide-eyed wan expression and comes slowly down to the center table. Where do you get your car, Governor? Well, I can get one right at the corner here and transfer. Oh, that's right. So you can. Well, we're ever so much obliged to you. Don't mention it. Good night, sir. Good night.
The door closes. Aubrey coming in from the hall door. When did you come in, Amy? He stops to look at himself in the mantelpiece mirror. Amy without turning. I came in the side door. I thought that man'd still be here. Aubrey coming down to her. Well, kid, what's the good word? Aubrey, Pop is dead. She buries her face in the lapel of his coat. He takes her in his arms, looks straight ahead, and there's a long pause, during which Amy cries hard. Don't let it get to you, honey. You have nothing to regret and nothing to fear. The kid from Westville'll never go back on you. You know that, don't you, baby? She continues to cry. You know that, don't you, Amy? She doesn't answer him. Amy? What? You know I'm with you, don't you? Yes. He kisses her hair affectionately. Don't cry, honey. The old man's better off than we are. He knows all about it now. He kisses her again, then detaches himself and moves over and down at the left of the center table. What do you think we ought to do, Aubrey? There's nothing at all that you can do that I can see, sweetheart, except to sit tight till the folks get back. They'll be down there themselves in a few minutes, and they'll know all about it. They said that Pop died at a quarter of six. Was that the hospital on the telephone? Yes. Aubrey moving up to a point above the center table again. Something we ought to have in here, Amy. A telephone. Not be letting the whole neighborhood in on our business. Amy leans on the back of the chair at the right and cries softly. Now, pull yourself together, sweetheart. He crosses to her and puts his arm around her shoulders. This is where Pop always used to sit in the evenings. It'll seem funny not to see him here any more. She breaks down again. Aubrey, after a slight pause. The old gent had to go sometime. He passes back of her and comes forward at the right and stands looking at the tip of his cigar. Your mother'll have you and me to comfort her now. He strolls across below the center table and stops thinking profoundly. Amy sinks down on the chair dejectedly. I don't know how Mom will keep this house going now, just on Joe's pay. Why don't you say something to your mother about letting us come in here? She'll need a man in the house. My salary would cover the rent. Mom doesn't have to pay rent, Aubrey. She owns this house. Pop left it to her. He made his will out the week after we were married. Aubrey looks at her keenly. Clara got him to do it. Who's the executor, do you know? Clara is. Aubrey nods comprehendedly. Aubrey looking away off. Too bad your father didn't make me the executor of that will. I could have saved him a lot of money. He replaces the cigar in his mouth. I suppose he thought on account of Clara being the oldest. I wonder why your father never liked me. Pop never said he didn't like you, Aubrey. I always tried to be clubby with him. I used to slap him on the back whenever I spoke to him. Pop was always very quiet. And the kid from West Philly had too much to say. Well, forgive and forget. It's all over now. And the old man can be as quiet as he likes. Amy cries again and there is a pause. Aubrey stands smoking. Amy pulling herself together and getting up. You haven't had anything to eat tonight yet, have you, Aubrey? Aubrey coming out of his abstraction and sauntering up at the left of the center table. 
Don't worry about me, sweetheart. Amy, going to the buffet drawer at the right for an apron. I'll get you something. It'll be all the same at the finish, whether I've had my dinner or not. He rests his fist on the table, throws his head back, and looks to the stars. Seek transit gloria mundi, and we never get used to it. He moves across to the upper right-hand corner of the center table. The paths of glory lead but to the grave. He stops again, leans on the table, and looks out and away off. And yet we go on, building up big fortunes, only to leave them to the generations yet unborn. Well... He moves forward to the chair at the right. So it goes. He sits down, throws one leg across his knee, and shakes his head up and down slowly. And so it will always go, I suppose. Sic transit gloria mundi. Amy, standing at his right. What does that mean, Aubrey? Sic transit gloria mundi. Aubrey, casually. It's an old saying from the French, meaning, we're here today and gone tomorrow. Amy, looking out wretchedly. I'm worried about tomorrow, Aubrey. He looks at her. What are you worried about, sweetheart? I mean Monday. Aubrey, extending his hands towards her. Now, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. You know that, don't you, baby? She takes his hand and moves over to the back of his chair. But you didn't have a license, Aubrey, and if that traffic officer should be seriously injured... Don't you worry about that, sweetheart. We're here today, and if he's seriously injured, we'll know all about it Monday. The curtain commences to descend slowly. Seek transit gloria mundi. The curtain is down. End of Act 2, Part 2 End of Act 2